0: You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, good to be with you again. Since it's Father's Day, we preach on what we always do on Father's Day, prophecy in tongues. Um... (laughs) Glad you got the joke. Now, that's where we are in 1 Corinthians, finishing that up today, uh, the miraculous gifts. I need God's help as we go to his word, so would you join me in prayer before we go there this morning? So God, I, I do pray that my words would be pleasing to you and helpful to your people today, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would bring you honor, Jesus, would edify your people And and Lord, I pray that you would give us great discernment to be governed by your word and led by your spirit. And Jesus, it's not always easy to know how to hold those two things together. So would you show us today, Lord, above all, that your name might be glorified, that you might be known in our midst, and that your church would mature to look more and more like Jesus all the time. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. There's a great little proverb that uh, Pastor Greg and I like to quote to each other. I stole it from him, actually. Here it is. Uh, In theory, theory and practice are the same. But in practice, they are not. In theory, theory and practice are the same. But in practice, they are not. No one knows for sure who said that. Uh, In theory, it was Yogi Berra. But in practice, it was probably a computer scientist. That's what I... I learned this week, but that little proverb captures something that I think we've all experienced. That theoretically, you can think up a plan or an idea and it seems like it'll work great until you try to practice it and then it all falls apart. You come up with a great vacation for your family. You plan every detail perfectly. So that everything will go perfectly and it goes terribly because your family hates the vacation. They just hate it, right? What happened? There's this disconnect between theory and practice. In theory, my practice is going to work. In practice, my theory falls apart. You ever had that happen to you? I think that is the tension that many of us feel when we talk about these miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's what we've talked about for the last three weeks, these gifts that visibly and dramatically display God's power and presence. We've looked at the gift of healing and the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And in theory, they sound great. In practice, uh, in fact, you asked me a few weeks ago, well, I asked myself on your behalf, Jeff, what do you think of the gifts? And remember what I said? In theory, I think all these things continue. I think they're all available today, but I don't pursue them or tell you to pursue them. And you said, Jeff, that sounds a little inconsistent. And I said, you're right. It is inconsistent. You know why? Because in my mind, these things seem beautiful. Who wouldn't want to connect more deeply with God through speaking in this language he gives us? Who wouldn't want to hear a prophetic word from God and know that God is in our midst directing and guiding our church? Who wouldn't want to see someone healed miraculously of an affliction? That all sounds beautiful in theory. In practice, what I've seen with the miraculous gifts is they're often abused in manipulative ways, in coercive ways that humiliate other people to get money out of other people uh, in ways that demean and degrade God's people and actually take the focus off of Jesus all together. So because I've seen the gifts abused, I'm very reticent to use them at all. This week I was reflecting on a remarkable story uh, of Delia Knox. Delia is a gospel singer. Early in her life, she got hit by a drunk driver, suffered extensive nerve damage, and for 22 years she was confined to a wheelchair, but then God healed her at a healing conference. What's crazier still is the healing is on video. Like, you can just go look it up and watch it, and I watch it. It's, It's wild. Now, I'd love to see that happen at our church. I'd love to see a wheelchair permanently retired this morning. It's an amazing story. That's beautiful in theory. What we don't see are all of the failed healing attempts that came before that. In fact, as Delia tells her story, she talks of all the times people prayed for her in ways that were hurtful or inappropriate. Are all the times faith healers would command her to be healed and pull her out of her wheelchair and she fell down. I don't want any part of that. So so does anyone else feel this tension? You want this, but I don't know if I want that. How do you use the gifts without abusing the gifts? Well, that's exactly the problem Paul talks about in today's passage. Let's start where he ends, the end of this chapter. He says, So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things, here's the key, should be done what? Decently and in order. Decently and in order order. The Corinthians really liked the gifts, but they didn't know how to love each other. We've seen that, right? And and so Paul first shows them the supremacy of love, that's chapter 13, why everything in the church has to be animated and controlled by love, and then once we are animated and controlled by love, we will what? Build each other up. And then we will use the gifts in such a way that builds each other up. So starting in chapter 14, Paul says, here's what that means for spiritual gifts. It means we prioritize gifts in love. And that's what we looked at last week. And we saw, what do we prioritize when we're gathered together? Prophecy over tongues, because prophecy builds up the church in a way that tongues do not. So Paul says, when we're together, we focus on prophecy, not tongues. And you see that emphasis in this chapter, right? Don't forbid speaking in tongues. I'll permit it. But what do you earnestly desire? Prophecy. Why? Because it builds up the church in a way tongues do not. That's the prioritization of the gifts in love. In this week's passage, he talks about practicing the gifts in love. How do you practice the gifts in a way that builds people up? Well, it's all about things being done, what? Decently and in order. Decently and in order. And if we are going to practice the gifts in a church, that is what is required. So... Paul talks about two things, the need for order and the need for honor. The need for order when it comes to the gifts. How do you constrain these things by God's word so they benefit others? And then how do we honor each other as we do it? So the need for order and the need for honor. Let's look at order first. Paul says the gifts must be ordered toward the building up of the church. Here's the danger with spiritual gifts, I think, and miraculous gifts, is that we equate spiritual with spontaneous. Spiritual with spontaneous. So so if something is really spirit-led and the spirit is really talking, that means the spirit just does something out of nowhere. Right? Like, what would you think if I said, you know, I spent hours this week preparing this sermon, but God told me this morning, I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about something else. You think, wow, God must have really spoken to him. And sometimes people talk that way as if if God is really speaking, that means he just interrupts whatever you're doing and says something else. But what Paul says here is that God works through our mind, through discipline, through preparation. See, I believe that when God leads me to speak, he worked through my studying and my praying and my preparing and everything that came before that, just as much as he would if he intervened and gave me some direct word. And so we have to control these things according to God's word so that they can actually be beneficial. The spirit of God and order or rule are not pitted against each other. That's Paul's point here. So let's look at what he says about where this happens and how to conduct ourselves. So so first, where does this happen? Go back. Um, Paul describes a church gathering this way. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation Let all things be done for what? Building up. And you knew that was what he was going to say because you were with us last week. Everything, build up, build up. What's the point of what I'm saying? You come together, let everything be done to build up. And Paul gives us this incredible window into the early church here, doesn't he? He says that each person is coming, what? With something to share. Something they've reflected on. It could be a hymn or a song they've created, a, a teaching that God has given them from the word. A revelation, that would be a prophecy. A a tongue, which we'll talk about in a second, or an interpretation. And and so there's this sense in in the early church that people are coming to minister in miraculous ways and in sort of ordinary ways, less visibly miraculous. But notice the worship was participatory, wasn't it? Everyone comes and And so they're loving one another, and they're instructing one another, and they're exhorting one another, and they're singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's a kind of mutual teaching and encouragement that happens in the body of Christ. And I think that's different than the kind of authoritative teaching that an elder does. This is just mutual ministry in the church, and it raises a natural question, doesn't it? Jeff, why don't we do that on Sundays? Why don't we all come with something to give? Well, I'll answer that. First of all, we do try to encourage participation. We we try to have lots of people up here participating in lots of ways. And there's lots of ways to serve on Sunday mornings. And and hopefully we broaden participation up here in different ways and have other people using gifts to bless us. But, But why don't our gatherings look exactly like that? Two reasons. First one is practical. Uh, The church in Corinth met in a home, which means it was probably 80 to 120 people. That's who Paul's writing to. Now, if you're in a context where you know everyone, it's a little easier to practice these kind of gifts. And even in that context, Paul says this isn't a free-for-all. As we'll see, he limits how the gifts are used. So practically, it's impossible for us to practice the gifts in this way right now at both services, and I'll get to where we do it in a second. A second reason we don't or haven't practiced the miraculous gifts on Sunday mornings at Creekside is, has to do with church unity, frankly. Uh, we are a church where we've said we're going to come to different conclusions on miraculous gifts. Right? So there are people here who are going to believe they continue and practice them. There are people here who think they have ceased. You know what? We're not going to break fellowship over that. Right? Which means on a Sunday morning, we're not going to gather in ways that drive wedges in our body. Does that make sense? So there could be a time or place for this, but we, for pragmatic and unity reasons, said it's not going to be this time. So where would it happen at Creekside? Could there be a time where we sought these gifts together in a gathering? Sure, there could be. (laughs) Have we ever done that? Have we talked about it? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe there will. This is the first time I've ever preached on this, okay? I don't have it all figured out yet. I'm just trying to figure out what it means. I don't have every practical implication. And I can't say anything right now because I've never talked to the elders about it, right? So, spirit could lead us into that, but I would say the most natural place this happens at Creekside is in our gatherings that are not all Sunday, but home to home where we're gathered together in community groups and small group Bible studies, this is where I think more of this mutual ministry happens, where miraculous ministry could happen. What would it look like to pursue tongues or prophecy and make space for that? The thing I would say if you're a small group leader is talk about it before you do it. Don't just say, okay, it's time to prophesy. Say, no, what's your experience with this? How have you done that? How open are we to do it? Get a gauge for where the group is and the openness of the group to pursuing that together. And if there is an openness, go back and listen to what I'm about to tell you on how you would practice these things together. The second thing I'd say is this. You don't need a Creekside-sanctioned event to pursue the gifts, okay? You don't need to wait for Creekside-sponsored Miraculous Ministry Day, okay? If you are with other believers in Creekside who pursue the gifts, who are open to the gifts, do it in a biblical way. Gather with them. Pray in this way. See how God leads you. You don't need to wait for me, okay? Just do it biblically. So that's a little bit about the where. What Paul's focused on is the how. Regardless of where we do them, how do we do them? Well, here's what Paul says about tongue, starting here. If any speak in a tongue, there, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to who? To God. Last week we looked at the gift of tongues. And according to Paul, this is just the definition I came up with from 1 Corinthians 14. What are tongues? A tongue is this a spirit empowered language of prayer and praise directed towards God that while unintelligible to us is nevertheless beneficial to our faith. That was all from 1 Corinthians 14. It's some kind of spirit-inspired language. It is a language. God understands it. The issue is we don't unless he interprets it for us. It's directed toward God. It's a prayer language. It's a praise language. And even if we don't understand it, it can be beneficial to our spirit. Paul says the one who speaks in tongues builds himself up. So here's the important point to remember. Paul, does he have a problem with tongues? No. He has a problem with abusing tongues, and the main way you abuse tongues is by making a gift that is primarily a private gift, a public gift, and an unintelligible gift in the congregation because then tongues become confusing, chaotic, and distracting from the glory of God, and they don't build up people. And so what's Paul's solution here? The Corinthians loved tongues. Paul limits the number of people who can speak. This cannot dominate a meeting. And second, and this is the key, he stipulates that if a tongue is spoken publicly, there must be what? Interpretation. You have to make it intelligible or it doesn't benefit anyone. Now, how does a tongue get interpreted? There's only two ways, Paul says. Either I am speaking this heavenly language with God and I'm praying and God gives me the interpretation. And then what I would give to whoever I'm gathered with is what? The interpretation. I'd say, here's what God is communicating to me. And then you would weigh that. Because I would argue that an interpreted tongue is just a prophetic word. That they're very similar. And you have to weigh prophetic words. So that's what would happen next. The second way it would happen is that someone had the gift of interpretation, which Paul talked about earlier. You would know that person is present. (laughs) And you would know that person could be there to interpret the tongue God gave you. Those are the only two instances in which Paul would say a tongue can be spoken in that way. Now, I've heard of this happening. I have never seen that happen. In fact, overwhelmingly what I've seen happen in services is everyone speaks in tongues, which is exactly what Paul says not to do. And then it's just distracting, confusing, and chaotic. So, can it happen? Yes, but there are clear criteria here to make tongues intelligible. So either God gives me interpretation to share, I share it, or someone else is there to give the interpretation. It's rare though. And you know why I think it's rare? Because what does Paul say the priority is when we gather together? Is it tongues or is it prophecy? Prophecy. And we'll get to prophecy in a moment. It's prophecy because prophecy builds up the church. An interpreted tongue sort of just becomes a prophetic word to build up the church. A prophetic word already does build up the church by its nature. Right? And I think that's one reason it's rarer. Um, And so it brings up this this more basic question, and it's this. Paul says that prophecy is uniquely a public-gathered gift Tongues is uniquely a gift for private devotion to God, right? And and so before we get to interpreted tongues, probably the question we need to ask is like, well, Jeff, should I pray in tongues? And what would it look like if I did? That's the question, right? Well, and can you give me an example, Jeff, right? Can you show me how to pray in tongues? And I will answer by saying, no, I can't. Because the minute I did give you an example of speaking with tongues, I probably wouldn't have an interpretation. And then I would disobey the Bible. And I would disobey the text I'm preaching on. And I never want to disobey the Bible while I'm preaching on that passage. Does that make sense? So, how does that, how does that work? How do I speak in tongues? I would say the Bible gives no guidelines. It says pray for the gift. Pray and ask God, now Jeff, why would I need to speak in tongues in prayer? And I think all these gifts continue. So this is from the perspective of a continuous, someone who thinks these gifts continue. Here's what I'd say. I think there are times in prayer, and have you ever gotten to a point where you just run out of things to pray for? You're praying for a need in your life. You're praying for someone else. And you're like, God, I don't know what to pray. I've prayed myself out but there's a yearning in my heart for you to do something in my life. I think tongues become a way of connecting my spirit with God and expressing something to God that I just can't express with my mind. And in that way, I connect in my spirit with God's spirit, and I am built up in my faith. I think that is a way of applying what Paul says in Romans 8. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8, 26 through 27? He says this. Do we have that Yeah. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. You ever been there? I don't know what to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul says the Spirit of God is constantly interceding through us to God. Isn't that comforting? By the way, that's going on all the time. All the time. The the Spirit is bringing our prayers to God. Man, that's a great encouragement to pray, isn't it? (laughs) That the Spirit is actually helping you. Now, regardless of whether you speak your tongues or not, that's happening. That's happening all the time. I think one form it could take is praying and crying out in a language you don't understand. A groaning too deep for words. Sometimes in scripture, the spirit is the one we cry out by. Later in Romans 8, it will say we cry out by the spirit, Abba, Father. But but in Galatians 4, Paul says that the spirit cries out through us. Abba Father. So in that case, who's doing the crying? Is it me or is it the Spirit? I guess it's both, right? And I think that's what's happening in tongues is that it's like the Spirit is taking our longings before God and helping us to connect in a way that we couldn't. And so here are two things I would say if you want to grow in that. The first is if you're not praying and praising God in your private devotional life, (laughs) there's no reason to pray for tongues if you're not doing that you need to learn how to pray and pray persistently for things and praise persistently for things and develop that habit as a way of connecting with God. And once you do, I think it's fine to pray for tongues. Now, now, Jeff, how will I know that I'm praying in tongues? I'll just say in my life, I think I've done it a few times. And in every instance I've done it, it's where I come to the end of myself and pour out myself before God and he just gives me a peace I haven't gotten any other way. I don't know what it'll look like for you, but that's what it's looked like for me. I'm crying out. The spirit intercedes. I experience a peace that surpasses understanding. That's what it looks like for me. How do you know you're speaking in tongues? Will it be a foreign human language? It might be. I don't know if it's limited to that, though. Because in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul talks about his mind being unfruitful. He seems to entail that this is a mystery of the Spirit. He compares the gift of tongues to human languages in verse 10. And it would be weird if he was comparing identical things. So while the gift of tongues could be a human language, I wouldn't limit it to that. And frankly, I wouldn't get hung up on that point. I would just pray for the gift as you desire to express it. I'm sure that answer disappointed some of you, but frankly, there's nothing more to say from the Bible, okay? But that's what I would say. It can build you up in a way where your mind just can't go any further. Your spirit can still be built up as you're pressing into God. All right, that's tongues. Prophecy. This is the one Paul focuses on, and here's what he says. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that what? All may learn and all may be encouraged. Keep going. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Here's what Paul is saying. When he talks about prophets, I think he's just talking about someone who has a prophetic utterance. Not someone who has the office of prophet, but just someone who has a prophecy to share. Paul says, go one by one. Apparently, the Corinthians love talking over each other. And he says, don't talk too long. If someone's going and going and going and another person gets a revelation, say, you know what? I'm going to defer and see if that revelation over here, maybe it confirms or challenges or clarifies something the first person is saying. The other thing Paul says is that prophecy needs to be weighed Weighed not just by the elders of the church, but I think by everyone who's present and gathered to say, okay, how does this line up with scripture? And we'll get to weighing here in a second. And notice what he says. He says, the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. What does he mean? He says this, I think, if God gives you a revelation, that means you are responsible to exercise self-control to subject it and not just blurt it out. The spirits of the prophets, you can think of those as the inspirations of the prophets. Whatever the spirit is putting in you, it's not like these gifts operate when you're in a trance. Like I just have a tongue or a prophecy, blah, 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 I just have to shout it out. That's not how this works. No, think about it, he's saying. Consider it. How will you deliver it and wait for the opportune time to speak? Why? Because God is not a God of what? confusion, but of peace, harmony, shalom. And so you see, you might have a supernatural revelation, but your mind is engaged, it's discerning, you wait your turn, and then you subject it to the evaluation of the church. Now, the way that prophecy gets abused today is this. First, people just blurt things out, and rarely is there, an inter- is there a weighing of what is said, right? Right? It'll come when like a leader on stage says, God gave me a vision and here's where we're going as a church. you like, well, d- d- does that get to get weighed? <laughs> does anyone evaluate that? Well, if it's a prophecy, it has to be weighed. So how do you actually practice this gift? Let's go back to the definition of prophecy that we looked at last week. Again, this is all from 1 Corinthians 14, just what he says. The gift of prophecy is revelation from God Reported by humans in the form of teaching or instruction that reveals the secrets of people's hearts. There's usually supernatural knowledge involved and brings encouragement and consolation so that the church might be what? Built up, which is the point. I made an argument last week that when Paul talks about the gift of prophecy here, he's not talking about capital P prophecy that's like on par with the Bible. The kind of prophecy he's talking about is lowercase p. God reveals something to us. We report it, but our report could have error, could have confusion. It needs to get sorted out, which is why prophecy needs to be weighed. The kind of prophecy he's talking about here is some kind of supernatural knowledge, often applying the Bible in a supernatural way. And it's not primarily about predicting the future. We think prophets, you know, thus says the Lord, this thing's about to happen. That's not the kind of prophecy I think Paul is focused on here. It's speaking the word of God into the situation of the church in a way that has supernatural revelation behind it. So, Jeff, how do I know if I've got a prophetic word to share? I don't know. Paul doesn't give us any guide. But I will say this on how you know, discerning it. There are are a few guidelines here. Paul talks in Romans 12 about prophesying in proportion to our faith. Now, there are two ways to interpret that. I think one way to interpret that is to say prophesying in proportion to our faith is gauge how strongly you believe that you've heard from God on this. How how strong is the measure of your own faith that I think this is from the Lord? How do you know if something is from the Lord? Well, where did it come from? Did you get a vision? Were you thinking about this thing already? Did God just bring someone to mind all of a sudden or bring specific details to mind of a person sitting in the room? Start talking to God about that thing. The second thing I'd say is this about the gift of prophecy as we seek it. You can never seek the gift of prophecy apart from just seeking in general to grow in your understanding and knowledge of God's word. Because how does the spirit guide us? Through his word. The word is the sword of the what? The spirit. The spirit. The Spirit's promise is to bring to mind what? The words of Jesus. So you have to be immersed in Scripture if you want to grow in this gift so that God can give you ways to apply it in certain situations. I think a gift of prophecy could just be God bringing a specific Scripture to mind for someone in a certain position. I was praying for someone a few weeks ago and they just said, I don't even know how to come to God in faith with this. And immediately Mark 2 shot into my mind with the paralytic. You remember that story? And he can't come to Jesus. His friends bring him to Jesus. And I just thought, well, maybe what God is saying to you is that I'm supposed to bring you to Jesus right now. And that my faith can help your faith to grow. Now, was that a prophetic word? I'm not sure. But I think it could be. I think that could be a way that God directs us in that way. So first you have to discern what is God saying in this situation. Maybe it's a specific word often connected with scripture discerning that. It has to be consistent with scripture. How do you deliver a prophetic word? How do you say this to someone? Well, Paul says it's for people's encouragement and consolation. (laughs) So here's a few warnings. If I'm right that this is lowercase p prophecy, something I would really guard against saying is thus saith the Lord. Because you're not Isaiah. You're not Jeremiah. You're not Jesus. Okay? And the minute people talk like that, it gives the impression that whatever I say is unassailably, unimpeachably true and it cannot be evaluated. Right? It has to be accepted. I would guard against saying that. I would guard against making predictions about the future because if you're wrong, no one's going to listen to you again. Okay? It's forth telling, speaking into the situation. So I would say something like this. I have a sense from the Lord that. God gave me a picture in my mind that. What does that sound like to you? Does that confirm anything to you? I I, I feel a strong impression from the Spirit of this. Does that make sense? That's a different way of talking. And you see that in Acts. Acts. Right at the end of the Jerusalem council, after they've all prayed about this big decision, what do they say? It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. We've used our wisdom. This is what seems to be what God is doing in this situation. I think there's a good kind of tentativeness there because the next step, prophecy needs to be what? Weighed. Dissecting prophecy. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. You have to test prophecy. Number one way you test prophecy, does it align with Scripture? If someone says, I've got new revelation, right? Sexual immorality is fine. That's not new revelation. (laughs) It's the wrong spirit that's talking to you, right? Weigh it against Scripture And then the other way that you weigh prophecy is does it confirm something supernaturally happening in my own life, right? Is the vision or whatever that someone is getting, is there a confirmation? So let me tell you practically how this works because I've been very reluctant to do this. I'm starting to take more risks now in this. I will get visions about people and they come out of nowhere. I'll just be driving. I'll have very specific visions about people. Is it from the Lord? I don't know. But I've started asking people. And and I've said, hey, I have a vision of you a few days ago. And it looked like this. Does anything in your life, does that ring true in any way? Sometimes they say, yes. Sometimes they go, huh. (laughs) And if they go, huh, that's fine. The worst thing that happened is they knew I was thinking about them and cared about them. Right? There's not a lot of risk involved in that. Sometimes this has ever happened to you. You get an overwhelming burden to pray for someone. Just, oh my, something is happening in that person's life. I had this happen to me last summer. I just thought, he is so anxious right now. He is overcome with anxiety. I need to pray for him. And I texted him. I said, he's anxious right now. He's like, how'd you know? <laughs> the Lord, right? Test it. Confirm it. Weigh it. And that's the telltale sign of someone earnestly seeking. Here's how you know a con man or woman who's a prophet. They refuse to have their words weighed. No, that's just from the Lord. It's like, well, God didn't tell me it's from the Lord. (laughs) We need to weigh this thing together. And and by the way, that's how decisions are made in Scripture. Look at Acts. It's not just God leading me. It's God leading us together into truth. The Spirit leads us into truth together. So that's how we order those gifts. Does that make sense? Uh, And now I'll end on the most perplexing verse in 1 Corinthians. And this has to do with practicing the gifts with honor. Not just order, but with mutual honor and respect. Here's the most confusing text in 1 Corinthians. Paul says this, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Sometimes the Bible elicits a strong reaction in us, doesn't it? There's a record scratch moment. And we were tracking, we were tracking, we were tracking, and then er, right? And, And this can come across as very jarring, and there are at least three reasons. First, it appears to come out of nowhere. Paul was giving very specific instructions about gifts, and now he's making this blanket statement about women. Second, the language is very expansive. I mean, Paul was giving very specific instructions and now he's making these blanket statements about an entire group of people, probably the majority of the church, women. And it appears to be this categorical prohibition. They can never speak in public gatherings. They can only speak at home. That's the second reason it's jarring. But, but the third reason it feels jarring is because we kind of wonder, maybe in the back of our minds, like, is Paul being dismissive towards women here? Is he demeaning women? It's shameful simply for a woman to speak. Why, Paul? Can you unpack this a little bit? Paul, where are you getting these ideas? Now, I think these verses are in the Bible. I think Paul wrote them, which means I think God inspired them. How do you make sense out of Paul's reasoning here? A few things as briefly as I can. Before you draw any hard and fast conclusions on what this means, you have to interpret Paul in his context, Right? in the literary context of the book. Is Paul someone who's generally demeaning toward women? I would say absolutely not. He names and publicly honors women at the end of all his epistles. He talks about women as his co-laborers in ministry, people he's reliant on for different ministry. He talks about a mutuality of ministry. Paul's not the kind of guy who just arbitrarily demeans women, okay? That's number one. Second, whenever we come across a passage like this, we have to put our biblical detective hats on, and say, so are there clues in the text that say there is more here than meets the eye? And I think in this case, there is. 1 Corinthians 11 through 1 Corinthians 14 is all about public worship, right? That's the context. So, what Paul says about public worship between 1 Corinthians 11 and 14 needs to be internally consistent, right? Unless we want Paul to contradict himself, which I don't believe because God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. So, what kind of speaking is Paul talking about here? I would argue Paul is not prohibiting all speaking from women, but a certain kind. Why do I say that? Because back in 1 Corinthians 11, you know what we talked about? Women speaking in church. 1 Corinthians 11, 6 talks about women praying and prophesying in church. And clearly, He's taking, each one can come with a gift here and share it. So Paul seems to assume that men and women are going to be sharing in church in front of other people. So that clues me off to saying the problem here isn't speaking for women, but a peculiar kind of speaking, okay? You following me? Look, it's the Bible. This is good, okay? Don't be too tense. It's all right, okay? Let's get a little more specific here. I don't think Paul is talking to women in general, but wives in particular. Why do I say that? Because he doesn't just say, let women keep silent. He goes on to say, let them ask who? Their husbands. He's talking to married women. He's talking to wives. If you go back to chapter 11, the issue was the way wives were dishonoring their husbands in public worship. Don't have time to go back to 1 Corinthians 11. That was the issue. So there's some issue here, whether to the way that wives are speaking in the public gathering, okay? Paul is now third arguing that women stay silent at a particular time. I think that's another inference you can make. At a specific time. Have you noticed that silence is a theme throughout this chapter, out this passage, right? There are people who want to speak in tongues, but they need to subject themselves and what? Stay silent. There are people who want to prophesy, but they have to subject themselves and stay silent. There's a time for a wife to subject herself and stay what? Do you see the connection there? So I think Paul is being more specific that there is a time a woman should stay silent. The next inference I would make is this. That she would be refraining from speech that would be shameful towards who? Her husband. Shameful towards her husband. It says it's shameful for a woman to speak. Back in chapter 11, Paul talked about a woman shaming her husband in worship. I think those are connected, and I think the kind of speech Paul is talking about is some kind of speech that would bring public disrepute on a husband in gathered worship. And that gives us some insight into what law he is appealing to. He says, as the law says, be silent. Well, what law is that? Next slide. Well, I think he's probably going back to 1 Corinthians 11 where he appealed to God's law in Genesis 2 to talk about the husband-wife relationship. That's the only law that Paul has mentioned here related to husbands and wives in the context. And there he talked about husbands as head and woman as helper and how women should honor men publicly, wives honoring husbands publicly because of that. Okay, we've specified this, right? Now, based on all of those clues, what is Paul most likely talking about? Here's my best guess, okay? Most likely, I think Paul is prohibiting a wife from weighing or challenging her husband's prophetic word during a church gathering. Do you know why? Because it could bring him public dishonor. I think putting all the clues from 1 Corinthians 11-14, to 14, that's the specific thing Paul is saying. We already know that Paul thinks that wives dishonoring husbands in public worship is an issue, right? We saw that in chapter 11. The issue, and again, he's been talking about prophecy, this whole context is this. Let's say a husband comes up and says, I think I have a word from the Lord and I share it. And immediately the wife butts in. It seems like some of the issues at home could be brought right into what? The church. God has given me a word that we need to be gentle and kind toward each other. Oh, like we were last night? Like you were last night at dinner? Gentle and kind. I'm going to challenge that prophecy, right? We don't want that to happen. And Paul's concern here is that when men and women minister in public, especially husband and wife, they bring public honor to each other. If the husband is the head, we don't have time to get into all that. At the very least, it means you should want to publicly raise his estimation. Like Proverbs talks about. That a wife is the crown of her husband. That, that, man, when my wife talks about me, I look better in public places, not worse. And this is what Paul is guarding against. What would I say the implication is there? You're a team. You're a husband and wife. And then when you talk about each other in public, your reputation as a couple should get boosted, not denigrated. You're leading a small group together as a husband and wife. Make sure you're on the same page before you go in there. You don't want to be having a Bible fight <laughs> that's going to turn into a marital fight later while you're leading. You want to be one. And you want to boost each other's credibility in public. Does that make sense? I think that's where Paul is going with that. And again, it speaks to this idea that we are honoring and deferring to one another And if we don't, the gifts get abused. I'm the spiritual one. I'm the one who knows it all. Everybody shut up and listen to me. That's not honoring other people. Does that make sense? Paul ends with a very sharp warning. He says, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that is reached? Corinthians, you want to just do all this on your own? Are you the only people who believe in the gospel? If anyone thinks that that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Whew. Paul very rarely invokes his authority that way to say, I'm speaking the words of God to you right now. And if you disregard these, if anyone does, the church should disregard that person and not listen to them. The Corinthians, you love all these spiritual gifts. If you abuse them, have nothing to do with that person. Now, why does Paul give such a stern warning? Because these gifts can be easily abused. And and one of the ways that cults start, that aberrant religions start, is someone saying, I have a word of the Lord. Everyone listen to me. Everyone follow me. And all of a sudden there's the prophet who everyone has to go to as the intermediary between them and God. And no longer it's Jesus, it's whoever the most spiritual person is who hears from the word of the Lord the most. That's a really dangerous place to be. And that's why Paul puts very clear guidelines around this so we don't abuse it. Now, here's the issue. And I know I'm I'm talking along. This is a lot to get through, okay? Here's what I would say. Some of us grow up in churches that really emphasize freedom freedom of the spirit, spontaneity. And the danger of that is that we don't focus on form, order, the rule of God's word subjecting everything we do to obedience. We need the word of God to govern how we experience the spirit of God always. So that's the danger for people from freedom churches. But I would say, and this is from a form church guy, there's a danger over here. And it's that you so emphasize form and the word that we give the spirit no opportunity to do anything. That, that basically connecting with the spirit of God is, is just this academic process of reading the Bible and the spirit of God can never hit us or convict us or lead us to do something out in the world. Like take a risk and share the gospel. Or say, can I pray with you about this? Or God gave me this vision, can I talk to you about it? And we stifle the work of the Spirit and what He might want to do because we're so focused on doing it wrong that we'll never take a risk. Family, there's no way to do this without taking some risks, okay? There's not. They just have to be risks that are ordered by God's Word. And I would challenge you who have overemphasized form like me to consider, might God want to do more? by his spirit, if I was open to being led. Now, here's the good news if you're not a believer of Jesus, in Jesus. Uh, the gospel is God coming to dwell in you. It's not a distant or disinterested God. It's we trust in Jesus and his death and resurrection. And if you accept him in, he comes in you to lead you forever. All right, let's pray. So Lord, I pray that this has been helpful. I know there are so many confusing things in your word, but we thank you, Lord, and we trust you that your word is given to us for our benefit. God, even if something might be confusing, we no, you're not a God of confusion. Lord, you're a God of peace and a God of order through your word and abundance through your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that we would walk in the freedom of the spirit governed by the rule of your word and you would lead us in the way that we should go, that we would experience the power of the Spirit in our day-to-day lives. In your name, Jesus, amen.